Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of Hitchhiker's Guide to Nuclear. I'm your host, Gunther. On this month's show, we discuss the five top news stories from the previous year, including a sinking problem in getting a repository off the ground, a difference in opinion over contracts for difference, waste being placed in Davy Jones's locker, a change at the top in Iran, and a promising Pandora's box. So as I said, guys, we've been away on the audio sphere for a very long time. I'm joined by Mike Daly Steve, and Stephen Cockrell. Say hello, guys. Or... Hello. Hey. <laughs> so we haven't been on for a while, have we? No, we haven't. And we should say with a caveat, uh, someone's listening in on the show, uh, Helena Davis, do you want to just say hello? Hiya. Hiya. So Hannah's just listening on a podcast to see what it's all about. Uh, quite ragtag sort of audio discussion, as always. So how have you guys been anyway? Fine, yeah, yeah. All right. Gave up on fishing. Gave up on Excel fishing. And it's anything new. Excel spreadsheets. Yeah, Excel yeah. spreadsheets. Why have you given up on fishing? Everyone that emailed us when that was announced was like, oh, what type of fish do you catch and all this sort of stuff? <laughs> uh, more productive use of my time doing Excel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, yeah, we're, we're in final year, aren't we? A PhD. Yeah. So that's that's that should be explained. We, that's why we haven't been on for a while. It's simply because... We've time. been doing crunch time research work and theses are, are coming up, so we're all sort of stressed about that at the moment. How are you, Steve, anyway? Anything yeah, new you do? Nope. Just nope. doing an experiment and it's stressful. Stressful? Yeah. So Just organising everything. Organi- oh, so it's organising it as opposed to actually doing it, yeah. Taking two years. Isn't that the very <laughs> definition of a PhD? <laughs> organising everything and waiting for years until something actually happens. Right, so we're going to be talking, as I said, top five news stories of the previous year. Um, and I think I feel we've got quite a very bunch of stories, but shall we get on with it? Yeah, let's do yeah, it. Yeah, cool. Um, right, guys, so our first story then goes way back to that darkened time of January 2013. I don't even remember what I was doing at the time. So our first of our top stories of the year is definitely uh, the Cumbria County Council moving to decide that they wouldn't want to go ahead with the planning process and the construction process for a nuclear waste repository. And this, uh, we should put some, we've actually talked about this, haven't we, on the show, but it's quite a complicated and thorny issue involving district councils as well. So at the time, the district council voted on whether they would be um, interested in considering a high-level radioactive waste repository facility, and it turned out two of those councils out of three had expressed an interest, so that was Copeland and Allerdale, the district councils, they'd expressed an interest two to three. However, when it came to the Cumbria County Council, they had completely overruled them on the issue, even though there was a majority vote um, to go ahead with one. So, what do we, I, I suppose the first question to you guys then is, what, do you, what, what did you think about that, like in the first place? We'll go on to what's happened since, because there's been a lot of news since, but what did you guys think about that in the first place? There was clearly a lack of communication or understanding of what the districts or the uh, county councils wanted uh, to come from this uh, this decision. But um, that it was allowed to go to the point where one party agreed and then immediately the other one disagreed it shouldn't have been allowed to happen. And it right. then leads to this problem where you have to try and get an agreement on this depository regardless Mm. What, uh, if we want the future to, to occur and to be partly nuclear and to get rid of the legacy, we need to get this. And to try and get everyone to start agreeing, that you almost, although it's, you want everyone to agree and to be um, 100% behind the project, it almost needs to, a way of enforcing it or really enticing it and getting only one body, to try to convince one body on the final decision instead of having so, all these parties to try and agree to it. With that being said then, do you think it's inherently impossible to make everyone happy on this issue? Do the you think s- that the by the Swedes very- have managed to get some sort of agreement? Well that's Sweden and this is like- But would you say that the reason why Sweden was deemed a relative success was because they came in with financial incentives and social incentives for the local communities in order for this repository to be built. And, you that's, think that that's, and I think the UK is picking up on that. And do, but they, do you think that lends itself quite well this. then to the county council? Were probably do you, 
Do you feel that, I suppose what I'm asking is, do you feel the decision was completely driven by, no, we don't want a nuclear waste repository in this area, you know, and that's the bottom line, or do you feel it was more to do with, well, Sweden are getting these incentives, why haven't the government approached us with a package ready-made and tailor-made with a bow on it? They gave incentives to Copeland and Ullerdale, which is probably why they agreed. Yeah, right. Did they not give any incentives? I don't know, did they give incentives to hold the... I'm not necess- well, this is the thing, because the issue is quite complicated. I'm not necessarily sure whether it was clear-cut and... Preci- you know, their, their package was precise. I think they'd, they'd said or alluded to the UK government that they would... Uh, give them something a, a social community. package of some yeah. sort yeah, yeah. well the, the main one was employment, employment wasn't it well. they, they'd yeah. said employment was the main impetus for a community to volunteer for this because obviously it will generate a vast amount of jobs not saying that it won't but I think that because maybe they haven't been approached about other incentives for the local community maybe that's more of a driver as to why they don't want it as opposed to this nuclear waste repository nah. I think some of the comments I've seen is the Although it will be in a fairly concentrated area within a county, at the end of the day, it affects so many people. The broader county in itself, and maybe even the neighbouring counties, just the fact of having that waste there, and the potential risk that it could have. So I think that's definitely one of the sticking points, where it's just not up to a few hundred or a few thousand people to, to agree on this. There's going to be a lot more people involved. Yeah, and then you have to try and affect yeah all of these people. And often the... the um, the, uh, the information you see on the internet, they always show these very scenic and picturesque images of the uh, the Lake District. And are you do you really want to ruin this area? No, I don't believe in that. I think that's almost false marketing. But it just shows the impact that having that depository will affect not just the local community but the wider region of the uh, of the country. Would and then if you have to try and satisfy everyone with financial incentives and. Mm it becomes even more expensive. Now, I fully agree, it might as well be when they built that. Um, they actually they built a new gym area, they built a swimming pool, community swimming pool. They, they've tried to alleviate some of the concerns of the population in the area by these offerings. But if you had to do that for the whole area, Cumbria area and further, it's mm-hmm. a, sorry, it, it becomes harsh. I just think it shouldn't, it shouldn't be the county's decision. It should just be... The local council's decision, because they're the only ones really being affected. So they're going to be the ones who are primarily impacted by this decision. It's quite interesting you say that, Steve. Great segue, because uh, in the summer of uh, last year, the Department for Energy and Climate Change have actually revised their search or selection process, um, which, if it goes through, could actually bypass, let's say, county council-level decisions. So... This is quite interesting because they've essentially subtly changed their policy, knowing full well that a county council like Cumbria may well refuse it outright, regardless of what they offer them in terms of an incentivised package. So the Cumbria County Council have actually branded the government's decision to exclude it from talks over the search for an underground nuclear waste store as outrageous. It's clearly still a thorny issue. But do you feel that's the right way to go, Steve, with you saying that? Or just make Alderdale and Copeland a different county council. Just split them up on West Cumbria. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Labour Stuart Young, for instance. That's the next option. <laughs> Labour Stuart Young, for instance, who's leader uh, of uh, local authority, he says, we think it's outrageous. There was a democratic process which was carried out, culminating in a decision at the end of January, which we've alluded to in the sense that the county council refused. It looks as though the government didn't like that decision, and so they are inventing a new process that will exclude that level of council, the county council that took that decision. Events really show there hasn't been a right of withdrawal. We withdrew West Cumbria from this process, and now they have come back for another go. He's also said any idea that this in net terms creates jobs is nonsensical. I mean, I, I was seeing his point of view and his argument up until that last sentence. What do you think? Do you think it's... it's... Coming, coming back, yes, it will be a concentrated area that is directly affected by uh, the repository. But the wider population around that area will also be affected in some respect. If something goes wrong, they'd be affected. So I think it would be ideal for a wider uh, region to have more of a say, so therefore the, uh, the, dist- uh, the uh, county council... But they haven't been able to come to an agreement, and maybe they do have to refine or better define who has a direct say. But that then comes back down to this Conservative government 
thinking that a certain part of England would always vote for them, then they only focus the national vote to a certain area of the UK to always make sure they always get the right answer. It's as if they they've think, given up on trying to convince people. That's what they do it. anyway. They but do you think it's subjected not okay, not necessarily to the incentives, but the way they've educated the local community? Well, not not necessarily local communities, but Cumbria at large as to what this would mean, like in terms of an economic or socio-economic impact on the community. Do you feel like the industry has educated uh, those people well enough in, or you know, made them well versed in these issues? Do you feel that it's because not necessarily an ignorance, but a lack of knowledge around the issue at a county council level that led them to just refuse it outright. It's hard to say. The, the government has been, with regards to nuclear, has been having trouble making a firm decision or, or deciding on a, a, a very uh, definitive process to go through. So that vagueness that's been going on for a decade and longer has definitely pro- probably had an impact on people being able to make a clear decision on what is right or wrong with regards to nuclear and having that repository. And But I, do, I would believe that the people immediately next to Sillerfield sites, as an example, are probably fairly well educated on the risk associated mm. with having that site there. And just through experience, like Barrow and Furnace having the... Um, some of the submarine manufacturing and some yeah. of the alerts. They, they fully understand what's required, but that is just in a very focused area of the country. Okay. So if they've had to try and convince larger regions, larger swathes of the country of the benefits and try and educate them, that we're talking about more time that has to go into that, more and more investments as well. Okay. Well, any last opinions on that one, Steve? No? Okay, guys, let's move on then. <laughs> a hotbed of controversy over the past year, another one of our top sort of news stories over the past 12 months has been Hinkley Point, hasn't it? So essentially this has been mired in controversy from a construction perspective, um, from an economic perspective, and EDF now have created a consortium with Chinese authorities to build a uh, EPR, is it, I believe, at Hinkley? Um, so a mo- essentially a modified version of a pressurised water reactor uh, at Hinkley. So what's our opinion on this one, guys? I can see Mike looking angry already. Uh, <laughs> there is a soapbox available, Mike, if you want to stand on it. <laughs> yeah, it's something has to start. And it seems like it hasn't been a good start for a few years. And just... Having these Chinese investors, while the UK believes in privatisation, there's certain things that, anyway, I believe that shouldn't be touched by other foreign uh, countries or investments. But the UK is so deep in foreign investment, even the nuclear arsenal is managed, or or the contractors from the US manage the nuclear arsenal. It's like, well, if that's fine, then everything else is fine. So in the sense that having Chinese investors and French investors or the French government investing in the Hinkley Point C is, from the history of the, uh, the UK in the last 20 years, seems perfectly fine. It's still a bit worrying that we need to go to foreign states because effectively the Chinese are government-owned and the what? French are partly government-owned to try and get that funding for to secure but the uh, UK energy. I market. think that lends itself quite well to the argument that the UK don't necessarily have any more an internal nuclear infrastructure to build a reactor. Um, I think irrespective of that, they would still have to go, if they had an infrastructure in place whereby they had the potential to lay on jobs for construction and, you know, all centralised, we don't necessarily have our own reactor design anymore. That's right, yeah. Um, you know, you've got Westinghouse and, well, Arriva. You know, two company, foreign-based companies. Um, so I think it's quite difficult, isn't it? I, I, I don't think you'd ever escape uh, foreign investment in this country. It's not like France that is essentially, let's say, 
mostly self-sufficient over the nuclear fuel cycle, as opposed to this country that heavily relies on. Um, I mean, as an example, I suppose, a completely different technically point, but uh, reprocessing in this country, in which we were trying to create an economically viable technology, which we could actually recycle other countries' waste and send it back to them. However, there's been issues around <laughs> that that mean it hasn't as may have worked as well as it, as it should have. But which is why we need prison reactors. Which is why, yeah. Well, this again, that's GE Hitachi, isn't it? So, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Do you feel that that is necessarily the real controversy over the issue, or do you feel it's the means in which foreign investment has been obtained? Not necessarily foreign investment fundamentally, but the, the way this investment has been obtained over the past two, three years has been a very protracted negotiation, hasn't it? I mean, we've been talking about this since we even started the website. <laughs> Do you feel that that's more the issue? So this contracts for difference thing? That's right, yeah, nice segue into that. Uh, <laughs> I was trying. <laughs> I was trying, Mike. I was going to mention fishing, but... <laughs> oh, those fishes. Oh, yeah. They're going to so, do you... It's, it's, yeah, it's... First of all, there's been controversy over the uh, the price, the initial price of it. And compared to other energies, it's actually one of the cheaper ones, especially the renewable energies. But then it's government intervention into it's just the whole, just the whole system is hypocritical. So you get government intervention deciding the price when it should be the the actual company EDF who decides on the price initially. But then the UK government wants to be they've done this contract for difference to try and finance. The, uh, the immediate high cost of the uh, the nuclear industry. And it's not finance the immediate cost, it's to guarantee that they'll get a return to their investors. Over oh, 20, 30 years. But that's years, the yeah. risk that should come with making business in a country in the energy market. Yeah, that's, that's what, I mean, that's what, that's what it is. These companies are coming in saying we are inherently uh, building it at risk because of the high upfront cost and, you know, we need to put things in place to be able, you know, because obviously there's going to be a massive uh, import market for specialised machinery and but whatever. If these then companies the government should just be honest. They've managed to get 150 billions for the banks, so just put in front 10 billions for a nuclear reactor and get your money back in the long term. That's that's. It should be as simple as that. But that would be a That'd loan be to. <laughs> that would be a loan to a private company, which the UK never does anyway. We haven't done that in the last 25 years. So it's just like they, they're playing with words. And how did they used to give the? They used to call the loans to banks something that was quantitative easing. easing. Yeah, so just call it a loan. Let's yeah. be honest about all this. And this this lack of honesty makes it all look very shady. And then you've got the Chinese coming in. They, then that makes it even shadier. And there's all this criticism. But it's like you've put yourself in a hole, and you're just trying to instead of trying to dig it, dig yourself out of the hole, you're digging sideways and creating more debt. <laughs> They're just trying to confuse people. That's yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's that is. I think that hits the nail on the head, really. About the sort of, what's I mean, what, what's your opinion on that? Then why why do you That's think like the that crisis, the financial, like all the financial derivatives things? They just want to do things like that, so we get confused and just say, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's the thing. Like I oh, love whatever. Uh, that sounds good. I mean, so you were alluding to Mike. I think contracts for difference. The thorn thorniness over the issue. We've explained this before on all our shows. Um, so do look it up because me and Gail were. Talk debating it for like twenty minutes on a previous episode of what it actually means, um, but essentially you have a wholesale price or electricity price, um, and currently that's regarded to be around forty to fifty pounds per megawatt hour uh, that's produced from a reactor, um, and essentially this contracts for difference. Uh, if there is a difference between the current electricity price and what they're actually producing. Um, then there has to there has to be an upfront lump sum that's paid. So if it's uh, underneath uh, the uh, current strike price, the strike price. Oh, oh, I'm even confused already. Um, so blah, 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 they agree. The company and the government agree on a strike price. So they've agreed it to be ninety two pounds. However, the current wholesale price of electricity is half of that. Um, so a difference has to be paid. So obviously the company would be operating at a loss there because they're not earning as much money as they could. So on that agreed strike price, the consumer would pay up the difference. However, if the wholesale electricity price ever goes over that agreed strike price, then the company or the or the uh, regulator has to pay that money back 
into the purse of the consumer. So I, the contention on this issue and this confusion is that the strike price that has been agreed, people argue, and me, the media have argued this too high, and they don't reckon that the electricity strike price would ever reach that. So the consumer is going to be constantly paying up uh, for this construction. And that's for 30 or 35 years. 35 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah about 35 years. Yeah, about here, yeah. So well, the strike price goes down if they build Sizewell C as well for £89.50. So, what, I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think it's um, a win-win for industry and not for the consumer at all? Or uh, well, do you think asking, it's hard to predict the electricity yeah, yeah, market? Yeah, let's be honest, it's hard. Mm. Like, but if do you, you were think asking people thirty years ago what they thought it, the energy market would be now? I think most people would have disagreed thirty-five years ago. So it's hard, and I'm sure at some point, if in twenty years' time, the um, the industry is finding out that it's desperately losing money, or that the UK is giving far too much money away. They renegotiate these terms anyway, so it's. I think it's crazy to try and predict 35, 45, 50 years in the, in the future. I think it's difficult though because even I think if you compare electricity prices, <laughs> no one knows. Yeah. If you take per energy source, like electricity prices, and look at the variability, say oil or gas, or I mean, obviously they're fluctuating wildly all the time. Uh, whereas people would argue once a reactor's been built, uh, the electricity price pre. Let's say pretty even over its lifetime, and I think that's been a source of confusion. Is that the government, for instance, have been quoting the wholesale price of electricity uh, normalised over the whole industry, as opposed to maybe for one energy specific energy source. So I think again that lends itself, you know, to a sense of confusion. But I think you were right in saying that when actually when you take that strike price that's been agreed between the consortium and the government. When you take that against renewables, some renewable sources, actually, it doesn't look that severe. So, I mean, if you look at uh, the draft strike price uh, for offshore wind and tidal, the draft strike price for offshore wind is currently set at £155 per megawatt hour, and for tidal, it's set at £305 per megawatt hour which is quite significant when you actually look at the strike price for nuclear, which is around £90 per megawatt hour. So clearly, the government want huge investment in uh, tidal and offshore wind, because they're setting the price so high as to say, hey, you know, come and... Yeah, we're subsidising Yeah, this, we're yeah. essentially... And I think that's the thing, that people have argued that it is a subsidy, because although the contract for difference in principle would offer... Uh, the electricity price to wave over the strike price and the company paying back. People argue that that's never going to happen over 30 years. So in essence, it is a subsidy. But I'm not saying that. So Especially with fracking, gas prices are going to fall, aren't they, again? Well, this is the interest again now. Now that they were talking about this nuclear renaissance, how is this going to fit in with the government's current thinking on uh, shale gas fracking? So I don't know what you think about that. Do you think it radically changed? Do you think there might be... Nuclear might be put put on the back burner, do you think? Or do you think there'll be this big scaling up of nuclear? Or do you think fracking will take over the next 20, 30 years? Unfortunately, I think fracking probably will. because We saw the gas rush 20, 25 years ago where they just uh, started building all these gas turbines around the the country. And now, well, they're starting to become more and more expensive to run. But now fracking is just bringing it back down again. If it does grow as much as they estimate it to grow. But I think it's like but the, the US has clearly benefited greatly environmentally down, wrongly or not, but uh, they've definitely benefited in some way. Yeah, and I think I think going back from to the strike price, we were saying it's been very protracted in negotiations, hasn't it, over a number of years. And I think the industry has been frustrated with the government that they haven't they didn't announce the strike price much earlier. I think that sense of may let's say mild indecision on the UK government's part is also can be connected back to the repository in Cumbria not being able to say there's a stimulus package involved or whatever. The argument being though is that, especially with the repository, if the government came out very decisively and said this is what you'll get and it's very hard to predict because once, you know, they're not sure about investment and tax and all the rest of it. So I can understand it from that perspective. But I do think the government haven't helped with all the confusion around Hinkley. well, it's definitely know. been confusing. They've used vocabulary that is just uh, lacks logic in general. They just invent a new word to, to say basically loan and subsidies. Mm. 
uh, it's just getting really frustrating. And the fact that the UK invests in some industries in China and then we start criticising the Chinese to come and invest here, in my view, is hypocritical as well. If you want to follow this free market, free trade uh, environment, then it, it swings both ways. Okay. So we've been criticism in some. We've been offering criticism in some areas where we're um, we're just being biased towards ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Okay. Any other opinions? Any? Sorry. No. Just just finally, if we did find <laughs> loads of gas, why can't we just do like the Norwegians and just sell it to everybody else and not use it ourselves? Interesting point. Interesting point. Can't we just sell it to Michael the Germans? Michael Daly's thought yeah, of the day. Yeah, <laughs> sell it to the Germans. They won't have anything. They could fund our nuclear and solar power. Yeah, exactly. And that 300 strike price per title. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Well, on that well, capitalist conundrum, uh, we'll move on. This next story is one that we reported on back in May, I think. I can't remember now. Uh, but this was another considered to be one of our top five stories. And this was the discovery by uh, Spiegel, the German paper, that nuclear waste barrels uh, were found to be at the bottom of the English Channel. So this stems back to uh, a policy. But, well, it was, they were jettisoned, actually, by both the British and the Belgians in the 50s and the 60s. Um, and it was uh, low-level radioactive waste, and it was dumped in an underwater valley known as Herd's Deep. Sounds like a knockoff of a Lord of the Rings uh, place, doesn't it? And the British barrels, according to the paper, are estimated to have contained 58 trillion becquerels, mm. uh, while the Belgian barrels held some 2.4 trillion becquerels. By way of comparison, the European Union's limit for drinking water is 10 becquerels per litre. So that that doesn't help that statistic because that goes nowhere to explain the water is actually a very effective shield of radioactivity. So um, even if it was at the bottom of the ocean, which I'm not saying I'm condoning and saying it was good policy because it wasn't, but uh, yeah, it's it's uh, been misreported or mishandled, I'd say, by the press. But what do you think about this one, then, guys? It's just bad advertisement, really. That's yeah. uh, that's it shouldn't have happened, really. There was. A, they used to do, I think the Americans used to do it at some point, they were hoping that the, the intense pressures at the bottom of the oceans would contain the wastes um, better than actually having a solid wall around them. Uh, I don't think that's, that's exactly true neither. Well, but uh, it's just, it shouldn't have happened, it's clearly been done. Is it worth to try and clean it up with the risk of dispersing it even more? It's, it's a hard this, Yeah, that's the thing you see. I mean, environmentalists have said... Um, and it's not, uh, they said they should be removed immediately. And Hartmut Niels, uh, a German oceanic expert for the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, is also in favour of removing the waste. And <laughs> he was quoted as saying, if it's not too complex, then of course they should be removed. <laughs> so, you know, he's stating the obvious, really, isn't he? I think he must be frustrated by the question, because it's quite obvious that they should be removed. But yeah, I think it's, it stems back to this legacy, doesn't it, of, um, it's just that era, isn't it? Yeah, of, let's say, misjudged policies on yeah, nuclear waste yeah. management. It's like St Mary's Island in Kent, where they just dumped all the all nuclear submarine reactors. Well, oh, Dreg, isn't it? As well? Dreg's another one where they buried uh, low-level waste in quite shallow graves, essentially. As well as uh, the, the ongoing legacy ponds at Sellafield. That's been a, a, a difficult issue, hasn't it, in terms of remediation and yeah. uh, decommissioning? Um, That's, it would be interesting to know the conditions in which the barrels are in. If they, if for some reason they've been left completely they intact, into gold. What the? <laughs> <laughs> We've discovered a process. <laughs> Make diamonds out of it. What but gets me though is uh, they said if so they are intact, if, if yeah. it is easily removable, if it won't cause any more pollution, then yeah, why not? Why not? Let's just remove it. There will be a cost to it, but it's just bad advertisement for the nuclear industry. But yeah. saying that. There's, if you look at the bottom of the oceans, there's tons and tons of 
millions of tons of plastics. There's all kinds of other industries out there who have polluted the oceans worth, and in some cases the nuclear industry, and they're never reinforced to uh, to clean it up. So, yeah, I mean, uh, they said that some twenty eight thousand. 500 containers of radioactive ice were dropped into the English Channel between 1950 What's interesting, though, is, um, I mean, not to say that the investigation wasn't great, but when they sent a, uh, a um, remote-controlled submarine into the canal's depths, um, they discovered two waste barrels. Um, so I don't know where the other <laughs> 28,498 are. Um, but I was quite interested that they prided themselves on only discovering two. Um, so I, I, from what has been reported, they are still intact, so I imagine they'll be removed, but I imagine, again, it'll be a protracted uh, decommissioning exercise. Yeah, um, but I imagine it'll be a, a protracted exercise in decommissioning. But what's interesting now is that out of this legacy waste, I think, especially in this country... You're getting a lot of experts coming out in nuclear waste management, which, um, you know, to put a silver lining on something that, you know, this legacy is that um, we're hopefully going to be creating graduates and experts over the next 10, 20, 30 years who'd be fantastic at integrated waste management strategies who will be able to outsource their uh, expertise abroad and stuff like that, because obviously other countries are having problems with their waste. Uh, legacy. Oh, they will at some point. Yeah, yeah they will. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, to obviously it's a dire picture of a of a past uh, which we shouldn't go back to. But I mean, the fact that we're creating experts out of this is uh, a good thing, though, on, on the side. Was there um, any research done to understand if the coming back to fishing, if the cods or the uh, the fish around the region have <laughs> higher concentrations of uh, no? Uh, I, uh, to be honest, eyes, eyes oh, yeah, yeah, that would be interesting to see the activity of. So marine marine light and migration going on by the but then you would get if the it's shallow maybe. water and the, the, there's fish residing on the surface and they don't necessarily have uh, any activity exposure doses above background mm-hmm. or uh, any high you know let's say very heightened levels then you could actually raise an argument that hey you know the water's yeah, actually very efficient yeah, yeah I mean you've got I mean you've got these are all you know old steel casks, you know, I mean, you, you've got salt down there, you've got everything, I mean... But they could corrode in the next yeah. 10 years and then unleash yeah. whatever's in them. So, yeah. there's, so there's that issue to consider. Yeah. But any, any more on that one? No? Right, okay, we'll move on. has got to be the change of leadership in Iran. So obviously Ahmadinejad uh, was Iranian president and now Rouhani has been installed uh, as president of Iran. and or I should say voted in, not installed. That makes it sound quite draconian, doesn't it? Uh, and he's considered to be a moderate. And I think... I mean, what, what, I mean, what do you guys think about that, first and foremost? Do you think it's a positive? Yeah, it's yeah. definitely a positive change, I think... Uh... Everyone had to be a bit patient with Iran. Um, we are always proponents of democracy, and well, although it was slightly a directed democracy because he was selected as well, um, it's definitely positive change, regardless of how people look into it. It's, uh, it's definitely positive. How do you feel, Steve? Yeah, it's a very positive change as well, yeah. A moderate instead of an extremist. Yep, so. What's been great, though, is developments in well, especially for the West. There's been developments in the past few months in which Iran have actually engaged um, with the UN on curbing their uranium enrichment. And Steve, you were talking just before we recorded this about uh, the uranium enrichment curbing yeah, already beginning. Yeah. Yeah. The low enriched uranium. That's it. They're allowed to enrich up to five percent, mm. but they have to get rid of everything they've had. So yeah, I think I think it's been good. I think that 
Um, it'll be quite interesting to see how quickly this Kerbom arrangement, uranium enrichment will begin. But do you think it might be a case of um, a carrot and a stick like North Korea? Do you think that they're maybe going down that path of, you know, saying, hey, we'll Kerbom enrichment for a bit, you know, you ease our sanctions so we can increase export, import, and then all of a sudden again, you know, back onto. It's well. Or do you think we have to? I think. I, I think obviously myself, we have to go with it, and you know, and, the, the and invite diplomacy. Are definitely extremely intrusive. I think they actually more. In, they're the most intrusive inspections they've uh, actually set up. So it'd be really hard for the um, Iranian government to either buy a lot more um, uh, equipment it, without the IEA finding out. They're going to be very limited, and I think, like, from my point of view, Iran are trying to convince the world look, we just don't have it. We all these allegations that you've been making over the last few years just haven't been um, truthful. And uh, it's funny that some of the governments who are who have been saying they have them are also the ones who said that Iraq had WMDs, but uh, that's another point. I think we, we do have to put our trust in them. There's um, there's Russia and China in bo- on board, along with the Americans, which is often quite unusual. Uh, there's definitely been a lot of international effort put into this. And we do have to put our weight behind it. Yeah, I mean, I think you should be inherently optimistic about it because it's been... I mean, the negotiations have been very quick. Um, but then the US has been uh, negotiating with them for over a year. They were secret. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it so seems... I think a lot of work came has gone into public. it. Yeah. I think Russia's definitely put their weight behind it. Um, they, they, what I thought was slightly disappointing was... When the news first came out that there was an agreement on the table, they hadn't started following the, the, the rules of the agreement, but they said an agreement is on the table. Um, you've got Russia, China, uh, the UK, France, and uh, Germany, and generally speaking, the rest of the world has been putting so much effort to try and get this together. The agreement is there, they've all agreed to it, and then Israel comes out and says, but we still reserve the right to, uh, to attack them whenever we feel like it. And it's like, everyone's put so much effort into this, and now you've just basically given them an excuse for, well, actually, maybe we should need the bomb because we've mm. got Israel threatening us. And I thought it just, that's not productive in any way. Yeah. So I think everyone should just put their weight, put some belief into it, be cautious about it. But um, it's like any relationship, you start off a bit cautious and then you, you then more trust is built into it. And we have to give them at least the uh, benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I mean, what do you and think, it puts Steve? confidence in their leader as well. Yes. Which I think is definitely required. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, just the new leader seems really good. I think the difference. Seems like they want economic power. Like, yeah, yeah. Just want more money. Yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting. Reuters, Reuters. I never know how to pronounce it. They yesterday ran a Insight article saying that Iran's president's nuclear agenda inhibits social reforms in the country, domestic capabilities of the country, and I, I, I think this leads to something. Uh, I asked last week at uh, our DTC conference was about the power struggle between Rouhani and Khomeini, the supreme, so the supreme leader and the president of Iran, um, because they reckon the fact that Khomeini has given some rope or slack, let's say, to Rouhani on the nuclear issue, uh, he probably won't on any domestic policy uh, because he wants to assert his authority over Rouhani. Um, yeah, some say that by securing Khomeini's consent to the nuclear deal, Rouhani has depleted his political capital with the man who is the final say on all state matters, leaving nothing for domestic reforms. A former senior official, uh, obviously on condition of anonymity, uh, has actually said is a tactical flexibility. Khomeini has given Rouhani a free hand only on the nuclear issue, but not beyond that. Criticism of the deal by hardliners was actually part of the uh, Supreme Leader's strategy aimed at reminding Rouhani who was the boss and that he needed the Supreme Leader's support to overcome the resistance. So I, it'd be quite interesting to see how this deal actually impacts yeah. the relationship at the top of the Iranian uh, hierarchy. And what happens when the Supreme Leader is 74? What happens when he passes away? It's going to be a massive vacuum and... That's right. Well, That's you could end up with someone who's more radical or less radical, but they might just restart it again. If the president is um, has gathered support, he's managed to improve the uh, economical situation in Iran. He might have more support by that time as well. Rouhani, this is. So it's like you, you need to to go 
you need to give them the benefit of the doubt and the the, the IEA has, has said oh, these are going to be intrusive um, inspections that they that we're doing to the country. Yeah, I think what's interesting though is that if they do, I mean, they're obviously going to lift sanctions as part of this deal. So, I mean, let's say some of the industries. Uh, measures affecting the trade in gold and other precious metals, as well as the car industry, sanctions on them will be lifted, uh, and the export of petrochemicals. So huge industries, um, yeah, billions. But I mean, yeah, U.S. estimates suggest that the relief could amount to some seven billion dollars, uh, four billion but then, pounds sterling. Yes. But I think that's the thing: is that if uh, the Supreme Leader Khomeini feels obliged to assert his authority over Haney in any way. Um, in terms of this, this dom- the, the domestic and social reform issues, then this money may not mean a great deal in the grand scheme of things if Rahani isn't able to reform the country towards... There was a really interesting talk, I think it was in the House of Senate in the US, this week, last week I think it was, from a Senator... Um, uh, Weinstein or Weinstein, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how you tell her name, but she did look at the, the agreement that they've had now with Tehran and the uh, some uh, Republicans want to actually put more sanctions to really force the Iranians to give up completely nuclear and she disagreed with that and she just compared um, Imperial Japan and uh, Germany 50, 60 years ago and now they're some of our, the US's strongest allies. So she's de- she demonstrated that people change, although the, the governments might be at fault, in the end it, it is worth uh, fostering con- uh, conversation and to try and convince people to at least ally themselves to uh, to the Western point of view. So I think you, sh- you should definitely give them a chance. This could be a turning point for them, the same yeah. way Germany turned a leaf in their history. And she even mentioned Argentina, um, it was uh, Finland or Sweden, who were trying to get a, nu- a nuclear weapon in the 1960s and 70s, and they were convinced to, uh, to sign the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Pact. So she, she listed, I don't always agree with her uh, political point of views, but she did highlight some important uh, views that they should be given the chance. Uh, it, it's, it's going to take time. People don't change overnight, but uh, we should definitely support them in some way or another. And what do you think, Steve? Any, any final thoughts on that? Just, just also that $7 billion she she quoted that that's only one percent, even less one than one percent of the actual uh, assets that are um, that are controlled uh, outside of Iran, and that actually that they're not. Uh, it's their money; they've earned it, but they can't actually repatriate it. So they're only giving away one percent of the whole money that they uh, they have outside. So any any final thoughts, Steve? Well, I'm just thinking because America's greatest allies in the region are Saudi Arabia and Israel, and they both don't like Iran, so. Is this actually going to last, or are they just going to turn Well, that's the thing, the dynamic between all the countries in the Middle East, and especially what's been happening in the Middle East over the past couple of years, um, especially with the Arab Spring uh, taking precedence in that area, region of the world. Uh, It'd be very interesting to see where it goes, but as I said, you know, it's got to be greeted, as you said, Mike and Steve, with, uh, you know, uh, optimism as opposed to any sort of cynicism or scepticism. Uh, but yeah, any any more thoughts? Thoughts? No. All right, guys, we'll go on to our last story, which is essentially a very short film review of Pandora's Promise. story is just briefly a review of a film that we got to see back in 
November, part of the Manchester Energy uh, seminar series, uh, which was a documentary called Pandora's Promise, and it's directed by Robert Stone. Essentially, the documentary entails uh, people within the environmental movement who have changed their opinion on nuclear power as actually being a positive technology going forward as part of the energy mix and as a form of reducing our carbon footprint globally and um, it's also interspersed let's say with the history of nuclear power from its days as a weapons technology all the way through uh, to the civilian nuclear power uh, proliferation so what what did we, what did, I mean what did you think about the film did you enjoy the film I personally enjoyed it yeah, yeah it was uh I learned something as well. I thought I might, you know, having been in the industry for a while now or studying about it, I thought I won't be learning that much from it. But it was uh, definitely put some perspective on some of the uh, the myths that we have about uh, nuclear. And I, personally, one of the most interesting parts of the documentary was when he, okay, although he accumulated the air mass, he went to different areas around the world. And when he went to this um, this beach in Brazil, and it has such a high volume of radiation on the beach because of the sand and the sediments of the sand compared to some of the cities like Paris and London. Well, yeah, the Millicevo. Oh, that, was, that was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah, kind of just highlighted that our perception of radiation is uh, slightly flawed. Well, so, or the skewed. It has. Yeah, yeah, I'd say skewed. What, do you, what were the I've positives for you, Steve? I've some friends of mine already. It's, I think it's better for people who don't know a lot about nuclear power. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's a good introduction to the subject and... It's actually a, just a completely different throughput to the subject. You know, I don't think has necessarily been tackled before in in a way. But what, I mean, were, any more positives about the film? Did you feel like the history of nuclear power was well versed, or did you, did you feel it? it? It could have required more detail, but then that's just my preference because they they've told me a lot of things I knew already. So for me, it would have been nice to learn a bit more or learn something I didn't know. Um, but generally speaking, I thought it was fairly re- well rounded. It was quite interesting that the environmentalists did change their opinions. So people like uh, Mark Linus and Michael Schellenberger, they'd um, risk their careers, you know, to, in order to come out and say, hey, maybe nuclear isn't such a bad thing. Well, the director did an anti-nuclear. Yeah, and that's the thing. Robert Stone ago, famously so. did a anti-nuclear documentary. Which I believe was Oscar nominated, which is quite you know these things go around. Do you, do you feel there were any negatives to the film, or did you feel there was there's a, there were there any shortcomings to the film that it could have gotten around? They, they could have mentioned maybe uh, some of the renewables. I think to have it slightly balanced, they could have maybe uh, offered some of the positives of some of the other renewables because they are positives to having wind turbines and solar and so forth. But the um, the graph that he had of the, um, the the planet turning in space with over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years and seeing basically the, the world light up with all the different people requiring electricity, the billions of people on this earth. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? It's watched visually. You'd it's, like, wow. Uh, that's impressive. And yeah. then when he shows shots of Brazil where people just don't have running water or electricity on a regular basis, and at some point these people will want it or will require it, and we need to find a way to give huge amounts of electricity to it and billions of other people it's a, it's a, it's a daunting prospect really mm. I mean what do you think Steve do you think there was any negatives or drawbacks to the film well, the way he portrayed the environmentalist is slightly crazy was a bit yeah I, I mean this was quite I had an argument with someone on Reddit about this um, they became quite defensive of the film and I, I said without uh, divulging what I did uh, said listen I, I feel that it's portrayed, it's used people or figures within the environmental movement like Helen Caldecott as a yardstick for the whole environmental movement at large, which I felt was a bit unfair. You know, it, it basically, the environmentalists who change their opinion on nuclear, so I mentioned Mark Linus, who, they're great people, you know, and they're very liberally minded and, you know, they're very intelligent people, but it portrayed them as almost being on a pedestal of intelligence relative to people in the current environmental movement. Do you, did you think yeah, that was yeah, fair, yeah, Michael? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They look crazy in a way, didn't they? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it showed a lot of. I mean, there are there are a lot of protests and people are lacking in knowledge of the wider issues. But that's not to say that there aren't very intelligent. You know, Friends of the Earth were never mentioned, and they're classed as an evidence-based environmental organisation. And look at all of the drawbacks, pros and cons of each technology, and report on them. 
you know. Uh, I, I had a look on the internet afterwards at some of the interviews he's done with CNN, and he's been uh, with Piers Morgan. A Robert Stone, the director. Robert Stone, yeah. yeah. And uh, he, they face him up against some of the environmentalists, and some of them, I don't always believe what they say, or the, mm. but they seem fairly educated. They, they understood the problems. They understood nuclear technology. They also understood some of the most sustainable um, technologies out there. So I thought it would have been more fair to to have some of those people in the movie instead of some of the uh, the wackos we saw basically. Yeah, yeah. but I I, that, yeah. I I think I was thinking. I mean, well, there are some wackos out there, and Bob Kennedy <laughs> is one of them. I saw the interview <laughs> and I was absolutely destroyed. Try and so search for it on the internet. Family. It's a very interesting <laughs> ten fifteen minutes. Well, the first 10-15 minutes is uh, outrageous. And it's yeah, about it an is. Hour, the whole, uh, the whole but thing. I think that's the thing. Like it was, it's an inter- as you said, Steve. I think it's a very interesting introduction to the subject, and it takes a different through line to the argument, which I, I think you know is only going to be a positive thing. Going and it was forward. an hour and a half as well, which is reasonable. Yeah, it's a reasonable well, documentary. So. Go out and watch it, guys. It's on iTunes, which I paid for on iTunes, or it's now on Netflix, which I have a subscription to. Oh, um, is it? Yeah, so it's on Netflix, so go and watch it on Netflix, um, or any other video-on-demand service. But, yeah, that's that's about it. Any other thoughts? Yeah, it's worth a watch. Definitely. Worth a watch? Yeah. Okay. Recommend it. So, that's the end of the show. And yeah, I hope you've enjoyed it, guys. Uh, hopefully we'll be on a bit more regularly going forward. We do apologise we've been off the air for so long. But uh, check out our articles. We do still put up articles regularly. So Lizzie Murray uh, put up an article in December on Pandora's Promise and her thoughts on the piece. And, yeah, just keep checking us out and tweet us, uh, email us any questions you've got. If you want to write an article, don't forget to email us at nuclear.hitchhiker at gmail.com or tweet us at nuke underscore hitchhiker or like us on our Facebook page, which you can see through our website. But I hope you've enjoyed that, guys, and all that's left to say is bye from us. Bye. Bye. Bye.